I promised Paul Cockshot that I would release part two of our conversation publicly. Patrons this week get access to an exclusive lecture, part two in my series on how to think about social problems as myths. You can also listen to these episodes. Search Based AF, all one word, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, such necessities don't necessarily cause things to happen, uh, especially if there's a, there are very strong property interests and class interests in still producing fossil fuel, for example. Mm. Um, the all that it does there is shift the terms of debate to make pure free market, neoliberal models less ideologically plausible so that you get a shift there. You get a shift perhaps towards the sort of situation which existed in the capitalist countries in the 1950s where it was recognized the state had to, to play a role in planning things. Now, it it struck me three or four years ago, that the Johnson government was rather like Harold Macmillan's government in that both saw the need for the state to play a, a, a significant role in developing the economy in a way which the conservative governments after Heath certainly didn't. Now, that's only a very, at most, it's a shift slightly towards state capitalism. On top of that, you have the fact the world is going through a crisis associated with the coming to the end of three or four centuries of European imperialism or Euro-American imperialism. It, it's reaching, it. it it's, it's limits at the moment, and the crisis we're seeing in the Middle East is one phase of that. But there aren't yet um, coherent political movements pushing for a change in the economic system. There is very fragmented um, politics around it. So that doesn't mean you can't get major crises because crises don't depend purely on there being political movements um, well established in the past, before it, but it, it weakens the possibility of change. Uh, I think we're going to get major crises. I think the main capitalist countries are, are much weaker than they have been for a long time. So certainly they're they're as weak, becoming as weak now as they were in 1970 or in the mid-70s. Mid-70s is the last time they were in a major crisis. And they're approaching that weakness now. At that point, they are in crisis because the Soviet Union and its allies were pushing them back. They'd won in Vietnam they were winning in Angola and Mozambique, and the capitalist countries were in retreat. At the moment, the period of unipolar domination is coming to an end, but as a, a factor pushing for change, China is much ideologically weaker than the Soviet Union was, in terms of offering a model, even though economically it is far stronger. Now, I don't think that you'll get uh, uh, a major change until the major Western powers are defeated in a, a great war, myself. I, I think the US has to have its Tsushima before it can have its 1905. About this idea of sort of realizing the necessity of planning, um, Engel says in a letter that 
um, the stock market has obvious revolutionary potential, which would probably strike a number of people as, as confusing. Um, but, you know, I saw something ages ago um, about BlackRock and Van, uh, what's it called, Vanguard, controlling some huge percentage of the global economy. And that this was actually slightly, completely accidentally, but slightly positive for, la for labor because at certain points they would um, make decisions that sacrifice some capitals for the good of a sector. Right? And that this is an example of just accidental sort of planning that goes on at a very high level. Um, and, there's, and, and China does this sort of more or less consciously as well. And I wondered if, if, if that would be an example of this sort of realization, accidental realization of, of the necessity of planning and control. This is something which uh, Marx talks about in Volume 3 of Capital. Capital, Volume 3, page 570. Apart from the joint stock system, which is an abolition of capitalist private industry on the basis of the capitalist system itself, and which destroys private industry to the same degree that it spreads and takes over new spheres of production, credit offers the individual capitalist, or the person who can pass as a capitalist, an absolute command over the capital and property of others, within certain limits, and, through this command, over other people's labor. It is disposal over social capital, rather than his own, that gives him command over social labor. The actual capital that someone possesses or is taken to possess by public opinion now becomes simply the basis for a superstructure of credit. Success and failure lead to the centralization of capitals and hence to expropriation on the most enormous scale. Expropriation now extends from the immediate producers to the small and medium capitalists themselves. Expropriation is the starting point of the capitalist mode of production, whose goal is to carry it through to completion and even, in the last instance, to expropriate all individuals from the means of production. In the joint stock system, there is already a conflict with the old form, in which the means of social production appear as individual property, but the transformation into the form of shares still remains trapped within the capitalist barriers. Instead of overcoming the opposition between the character of wealth as something social and private wealth, this transformation only develops this opposition in a new form. The cooperative factories run by workers themselves are, within the old form, the first examples of the emergence of a new form, even though they naturally reproduce in all cases in their present organization all the defects of the existing system and must reproduce them. But the opposition between capital and labor is abolished here, even if at first only in the form that the workers in association become their own capitalist, that is, they use the means of production to valorize their own labor. These factories show how, at a certain stage of development of the material forces of production and of the social forms of production corresponding to them, a new mode of production develops and is formed naturally out of the old. Without the factory system that arises from the capitalist mode of production, cooperative factories could not develop, nor could they do so without the credit system that develops from the same mode of production. This credit system, since it forms the principal basis for the gradual transformation of capitalist private enterprise, into capitalist joint stock companies, presents in the same way the means for the gradual extension of cooperative enterprises on a more or less national scale. Capitalist joint stock companies, as much as cooperative factories, should be viewed as transition forms from the capitalist mode of production to the associated one, simply that in the one case the opposition is abolished in a negative way, and in the other, in a positive way. But the capital itself produces pro progressive socialization of uh, control. Um, and joint stock companies are, are examples that he gave of this. And Lenin later talked about the cartels being a, an example of this. And that's why, uh, and beyond cartels, you had wartime state, um, state capitalism. Okay, and when Lenin talks about state capitalism, he means the German state or the British state running the war economy. And at that point, he says, all you have to do is replace the Junker state with a worker state and you, you have socialism. So th there's a long tradition to this argument. Now, the, the, what's different about something like BlackRock is it's international. Um, and it's much harder to see 
how you can have an international organization of capital controlled by any state, whether it is a, a, a capitalist state or a worker state, because it escapes individual state regulation. So that form of organization actually escapes beyond the process which um, socialists, whether they were Leninists or social democrats, sought to to bring it bring control about. They they were talking about cartels, etc., within one nation, and therefore these could be regulated. Um, which is essentially what the program of social democracy was. At one time, I, I had some hope that that could be done through something like the European Union, but I don't think it's at all realistic. <laughs> the, um, the state form of the European Union is so, it, I mean, it's based on the, the, the constitutional model of the Kaiserreich and is not really suitable in any way. Uh, it, it doesn't even hold the potential that the Kaiserreich had uh, for, for social democratic politics. So I, I really think it's very difficult to see how this is going to come about without, a, as I say, without actual the discontent that's produced by a major defeat. One of the things that um, I'm sort of accused of is sort of uh, like calling for a world war or something like that. I'm not calling for, I, I deeply, deeply fear a world war at the same time as I think it is highly, highly likely because of the inability to find um, uh, productive forms of investment. You know, if you can't, I always say, if you can't build um, bridges, you make bullets. That's the use for materials that you can't um, find any kind of um, sort of productive use for in the sense of, of producing enough profit to make it worthwhile. Um, so I fear very much world war, but at the same time, what a world war does or what conflict does is it organizes the working class into militaries to fight for something that is expressly against their interests. And that's a really volatile situation for the capitalist class. Yeah. Um, and they're quite right not to want to get into that, even as the sort of economic pressures push them more and more toward these kinds of global conflicts. At the same time, though, so much could go horribly wrong. You know, it's not inevitable that, that uh, at all, by any means, that anything good would ever come out of that. But at the same time, you then have the working class organized in, with, and, and armed. Well, do, they do, doesn't actually have to require a um, revolution either. The social democratic reforms which occurred in Britain and the United States occurred at a point when you had a large working class that had just been in the army or was still in the army and was voting for these things. The shift to a professional army in the United States came after the Vietnam War when they saw the risk to, to social stability of getting into large wars with a, a conscript army. And I don't know. I mean, it may be that America will back down as Britain backed down after 1956 and the agree to wind down their control, pull their forces out of the rest of the world, as Healy did with British forces in the, from the east of Suez once the cost becomes too high. Um, at the moment, they don't seem to be doing that. And so they will at least need the equivalent of their Suez crisis. Do you think that's coming now? It's difficult to say, but it, have you read the, the novel Twilight's Last Gleaming? It's about written about eight years ago and is a quite plausible projection about how overextend how an overextended the United States could end itself end itself up in a 
situation where it could no longer maintain its power and would start to fall apart. May, may, may I address that one? Sure. Um, look out the window. It's already happening. Historically speaking, collapse is not something that is an overnight process. It doesn't, I mean, people in, people in ancient Rome didn't um, suddenly open the door one morning and look out and good heavens, we're in the dark ages now. Okay. It's a process. And it's a process that's been underway in, in this country and, and others for a very long time. This is what collapse looks like. We're in it. We're in a fairly early stage, well, an early middle stage of it. Um, we can expect to see a lot more of it. We can expect, but it's not going to be the kind of thing that so many people imagine collapses as boom, Hollywood spectacular, corpses scattered like a really bad George Romero movie. Um, you know, so we're not going to have a clear line of demarcation. There never is. I mean, when you look at the, the number of people who in opinion polls in the United States say they think there's going to be a civil war, I mean, it's it's on whether you look at Democrats or Republicans over the last few years. It's about twenty in the mid twenty percents are saying that. So it's clearly a society that internally has got enormous contradictions and conflicts. And faced with a major setback overseas, I can see see the state uh, disintegrating. What worries me about these kinds of disintegrations is that there isn't really anything, any kind of organized, I don't even know, any kind of organization <laughs> that could make use of a moment of weakness. And so what worries me is that we could sort of fall into much worse forms of of oppression and repression and so on as like liberal as liberal bourgeois states begin to decline, we can backslide into something much worse if there's no progressive force in society. I agree. I mean, there is a, there's certainly a risk of that. Um, people in the American communist movement claim that they're making substantial um, gains of support in a way they haven't for a long time, but uh, I don't know how, how significant that really is. Maybe it has to manifest in something something different. Like I don't know. As soon as I say, like my brother, for instance, is sort of working class guy. He works for the pipeline. Works on the pipelines. My brother and I agree fundamentally on everything, <laughs> but yes. we have to argue for like four hours before we can agree. Before he will agree with me that he agrees with me Wait, no, because that, communism that, is so poisoned for him. That's why I think it, it's essential for communist parties to take the line of mass democracy and direct democracy, because that is something which cuts right across the cultural left-right divide and gets down to class realities. There's plenty of people on the right in the USA who would support that, working-class people on the right who would support that. It wouldn't be supported, obviously, by the leadership of the Republican Party. But there's plenty of people in the grassroots who would support it. And it undermines the, the class basis of the rule at the moment. But to do that, you have to actually say, the problem is the Constitution. The problem is the U.S. Constitution whole form of the constitution you actually have to have a new cons democratic constitution towards a new socialism cockshot and cottrell 1993 chapter 13 on democracy our object in this chapter is to think the unthinkable specifically to advocate a radically democratic constitution we outline a modernized version of ancient greek democracy and defend such a system as the best political counterpart to socialist economic planning. What the ideologists of capitalism call democratic procedures would be more accurately described as psephonomic procedures, Greek, psephos, vote by ballot. By glossing over the nature of class relations, such ideologies confuse the right to vote with the exercise of power. In fact, all capitalist states are plutocratic oligarchies. Plutocracy is ruled by a moneyed class, oligarchy is ruled by the few. 
these are the characteristic principles of the modern state. This state, the end or telos of history according to Fukuyama, the most perfect form of class rule since the Roman Republic, exercises such hegemony, spiritual and temporal, that it appears to have banished all competition. Effective power resides in a series of concentric circles, concentrating as they contract through parliament and cabinet to prime minister or president, oligarchy. This power is openly exercised in the name of capital, it being now accepted by all concerned that the job of government is to serve the ends of business, the highest objective of a state, plutocracy. The plutocracy's power derives from its command over wage labor, a relationship of dominance and servitude, whose dictatorial nature is not abolished by the right to vote. Psephonomia, or election, is merely a mechanism for the selection of individual oligarchs. Marx and Engels quite explicitly followed the Aristotelian definition of democracy when they wrote, in the Manifesto of the Communist Party of 1848, that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class, to win the battle of democracy. The violent overthrow of the aristocratic state and the establishment of proletarian rule were, for the founders of communism, synonymous with democracy. They spoke in 1852 of proletarian rule as the dictatorship of the proletariat. Dictator is a word deriving from the Roman Republic rather than Greece. It refers to one individual who was given temporary power to rule by decree in an emergency. There was a natural tendency for temporary dictatorship to degenerate into lifelong rule. Lenin and Stalin were dictators in this Roman sense. Is this what Marx meant by the dictatorship of the proletariat? Certainly not. What he meant was a mass democracy unconstrained by entrenched constitutional rights defending private property. Two and a half thousand years earlier, Aristotle had described such democracies. Another type of democracy is the same in other respects, but the multitude is sovereign and not the law. This occurs when the decrees are sovereign over the provisions of the law. When states are democratically governed according to law, there are no demagogues, and the best citizens are securely in the saddle. But where the laws are not sovereign, you will find demagogues. The people becomes a monarch, one person composed of many. For the many are sovereign, not as individuals, but in aggregate. Aristotle, politics. And what did these demagogues propose? Communistic measures like the cancellation of debts and the redistribution of property. For a democracy to be of any use to the proletariat, the masses must be sovereign, unchained by the rule of law, able to issue decrees that violate well-established rights to property in land or capital. The first and most characteristic feature of Democratia was ruled by the majority vote of all citizens. This was generally by a show of hands at a sovereign assembly or ecclesia. The sovereignty of the demos was not delegated to an elected chamber of professional politicians as in the bourgeois system. Instead, the ordinary working people, in those days the peasantry and traders, gathered together en masse to discuss, debate, and vote on the issues concerning them. There was no government as such. Instead, popular administration was carried out by a city council or bull with 500 members. Unlike the councils of our present plutocracy, the members were chosen by lot, not by election. There was rotation of offices and individuals only served on the council for one year before being replaced. Election was viewed with suspicion and was not used except for military officials. Elections, Aristotle said, are aristocratic, not democratic. They introduce the element of deliberate choice, of selection of the best people, the aristi, in place of government by all people. What he implies, as would be evident to any Marxist, is that the best people in a class society will be the better off. The poor, the scum, and the riffraff are of course unsuitable candidates for election. Wealth and respectability go together. Only where a specific skill was essential, as with military commanders, was election considered safe. The contrast with our political and military system could not be more striking. And that is not something which uh, any of the left take up. And that is a fundamental weakness. Because when you talk about, if you read what is to be done, it says you can only have a revolutionary politics if you want to essentially overthrow the constitution and propose a new constitution which will 
change the balance of class power. You can't do it just at the economic level. That's the critique of economism. And there is a failure uh, in general, not just in the US, but in most um, left-wing parties to take the issue of overthrowing the existing constitution seriously and proposing a new constitution. So what would what would a new constitution I think I think probably across the political spectrum that would be very scary, especially because we have a very illiberal turn um, within society where people think that people have too much freedom and that's the source of problems. And so, you know, people who consider themselves leftists but are really sort of neoliberals. Um, they think there's too much freedom in society. What we really need is more safety, more protection. And so I think across the political spectrum, this idea that we would rewrite the constitution first for the right, that you would allow that to happen within such a climate. And then for the left, that that could actually be something positive. If you take the U.S. example, um, obviously at least three or four of the key institutions of the state are anti-democratic the presidency, the Supreme Court, and the Senate. So any U.S. constitution that retains those in at least, yeah, anyone which retains those is an anti-democratic constitution. And one which retains election for the Congress is anti-democratic. And the fact that there is no provision in the U.S. constitution for US-wide plebiscites. They, the states often have plebiscites, but there's no provision for plebiscites at a federal level. Now, the institution of the president is just the monarchy with term limits. The Senate is essentially the Roman Senate or the House of Lords, which is at best a feudal uh, structure in the case of the House of Lords, more realistically a slave owner's structure in the form of a, the, the, the Roman Senate. And it was a political form imposed by the slave owning class. So what you have is a combination of monarchical and slave-owning political forms. And there is no way that the working class can be represented in that, or the majority of the population can be represented in that, those forms. It, you, you either say the, 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 the president is the, um, the king, or he's the first consul, or the emperor, but the borrowing is is quite overt and direct. So I wonder, like, how far is this kind of um, proposal from the the general kinds of political questions that do get thrown up? Because if you go back to, so where did Marx and Engels get their idea that the working class has a solution? Is from the Chartist movement that they had already, in the course of being engaged in the world, figured out that that a, a solution just through the course of being engaged in the world, working in the world. They had a proposal. Okay. Oh, yes. No, I'm not saying a, a viable solution or anything like that. <laughs> but they had, they had, they were trying to work through the big questions yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, demanded well, this sort of thing. From, it, it comes from the attempt to do that in the Cultural Revolution. Now, the question is, why, did, what, why didn't the Cultural Revolution developed forms which actually solved it. Mm. And in my view, it's because they didn't adopt the principle of uh, selection by lot. Right. They didn't, and they didn't adopt the principle of direct voting on major issues. It was too locally focused. Focused within a commune, focused within a, a, a workplace. Now, it was a serious attempt to deal with these issues, and it was still live until the early 70s. And if you spoke to, 
when I spoke to Chinese students who came over here in the late 70s, they were a totally different uh, political character to the Chinese students that you see now. The, the, the influence of what they'd gone through in the 1970s meant they were very political. In a way, Chinese students you, you, that I was seeing five years ago, I'm no longer teaching, but the ones I was seeing five years ago were not political in, in that sort of way anymore. Now, why did, did the, the positions I'm putting forward are not just positions I arrived at, but they were arrived at by several of us on the Scottish left. And they were arrived at by people who were thinking about what was going on in the Soviet Union, thinking about what had gone on in China, and trying to deal with the actual crisis we were facing with Thatcherism. And we actually applied these principles in a couple of cases, because the we applied the principle there shouldn't be any taxes without popping the votes on it to to launch the campaign to boycott the the bold tax. We used the principle that there shouldn't be any selling off of public assets without a popular vote to organise a referendum in Strathclyde on water privatization, which we won overwhelmingly, and we stopped water privatization. Now, these are political um, ideas and strategies which came out of the struggle against Thatcherism in Scotland, because Thatcher overwhelmingly rejected throughout the Scottish population. She was hated. So, there was a mass democratic opposition to it, and this was posing the question: How do you how do you resist it? How do you how do you deal with it? So, what I'm saying, things which were in our book were not just ideas that I came up with; they were ideas that people were discussing, and that, that came from sort of struggles that were actually happening. These coming from the struggles which were ongoing in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Yes. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that um, we have to have a correct understanding of political economy. And you mentioned the law of value. Now, that's obviously very contested, right? There, there are those thinkers, is it Heinrich and Rubin, that say that there is no, Marx didn't have a law of value. What do you say to that kind of criticism? Okay. Um, well, he uses the phrase. Okay. Um and it's pretty clear to me that when he uses that phrase, he means the law that commodities will tend to exchange in proportion to the labor content. Now, there are other takes on that. I'm forgetting who the Soviet economist is. One of the prominent Soviet economists of the 1960s, he interprets the, the law of value in terms of Marx's letter to Kugelman, where he's saying the, the, the idea that I have to prove the law of value is absurd. Every child knows that if a, um, a society stopped working, uh, it would perish. And every society has to um, distribute its labor in proportion, in a proportionate way between different activities. That version of the idea of the law of value it's interpreted as the law of proportionate distribution of labor time between branches of production, which then manifests itself in prices. But the underlying law is that deeper relationship. Um, and I think it's, it's arguable that that's what Marx meant. Now, the, the position of Rubin and Heinrich is similar to that which was put forward by Bordiga in the 1950s in um, Dialogue with Stalin and Dialogue with the Dead, where he says, does the law of value exist in the Soviet Union? All you have to 
see is go to a, a peasant market and do goods exchange for money. And the equivalent exchange, exchange for, for, for money, was, according to Bodhika evidence, that you had a law of value. But whilst that seemed appealing to me when I first read it, I don't think it's, it's coherent because it's a basic point that Marx makes in many places is that commodities can sell above or below their value. Mm -hmm. So exchange of things on the market is not itself evidence of equivalent exchange. To say that equivalent exchange exists is to say that it will statistically tend towards equivalent exchange, but it is not the exchange which makes it equivalent. The equivalence derives from the, the being the same amount of labor in one thing as to the other. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's, there's no labor in, a, in a, a ruble note or no labor in a 10-pound note. But one is talking, therefore, about the, the ratio of um, pounds to hours between different branches of production and that this tends to be a narrow distribution. And we know empirically it is a narrow distribution. So that is, um, that is the sense which I think Marx is saying there is a law of value. Now, there's a, the deeper sense of it is that that law operates even if you attempt to change the prices. And that was the problem that the Poles had. They might sell meat at, at a low number of zlotys per kilogram, but the law of value was the, the amount of peasant labor required to produce a pig was a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. And the law of value was asserting itself in the form of shortages yeah. when the prices were set below the, um, the actual value. That's what I was going to say. Like, it doesn't mean just because the prices don't are, are like high, below, you know, above or below doesn't mean that the law of value isn't operating. In fact, the law of value will assert itself. It's that it's the, it's the thing in the background that those prices are hovering around. Um, yeah. So it strikes me as weird to say that it's not operating. Um, so th- in addition, in addition, there's this whole debate about the law of value being sort of a, whether or not it's something that exists within capitalism or is being abolished within capitalism and what Marx sort of meant by that. And I don't know, it seems to me that they, they sort of trace the beginning of the development of a serious kind of development of the law of value in terms of an overarching governing social relation long preceding capitalism and that within capitalism it was abolishing itself in the sense that um the falling rate of profit is this sort of the inability to keep this thing going yeah but that's not to do with value that's that's to do with um the ratio of surplus value to capital which is not not the same thing as a law of value it's, it's, the, it's the law of value asserting itself which causes the, the rate mm-hmm. of profit to fall. Right, but then would we not have, would that not mean that we are, we would move toward a society in which the law of value is no longer the governing social relation eventually? No, it just, it just, just means that they, they have to operate at lower rate of profit. You can look, go and look at Japan. Mm. It means the rate of interest must be re- re- effectively negative zero or negative and uh, it has effects mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that the price of commodities ceases to be tied to their values i mean that you would go beyond price and money and this sort of thing eventually you could but only you can only do that if if you abolish private ownership mm-hmm. so, so long as you've got private firms operating you're not going to get rid of money no, no, no. I don't mean within capitalism. I'm saying like 
that if you understand sort of the the entire trajectory that it's pointing to the development or, or the potential development of an, another system entirely. Well, if you mean the falling rate of profit arises under quite specific conjunctions of circumstances, you have to have a relatively stable population or population that's no longer growing much. And you have to have a prolonged period of significant accumulation. Um, that allows the capital stock per worker to build up and the therefore the rate of return on the capital to fall. If, if you've got a society like Egypt rather than Japan, where you have very rapid population growth, what, I mean, I haven't looked at e Egyptian figures for about eight years now, or eight to 10 years, but until eight or 10 years ago, you were getting a declining uh, capital to labor ratio in Egypt because the growth of the working population was so rapid and the rate of capital accumulation was relatively slow. So the rate of profit was rising. So, I mean, when, when the rate of profit rises, you can't say, or falls, you can't put that down just to a law or value. You have to take into account demography because what is value about is about humans and about their time. Uh, so you have to, you have to go, behind the surface appearances to what the reality is, which is human time and human resources. So if human resources are growing very rapidly, right? Yeah, as they are in Egypt, then you don't get a falling rate of profit. If human resources are stagnant as they are or declining as they are in Japan, because you have sub-reproduction birth rates, you have a larger proportion of the population is too old to work. Under those circumstances, the law of value asserts itself as a declining rate of profit. In Egypt, the law of value asserts itself as a rising rate of profit. Mm -hmm. You can't analyze these things outside of the real causal process. Okay? I mean, people think value and the law of value is to do with money. No, it's not. Mm. It's to do with people and their time. People like Heinrich lose sight of that, I think. Now, I know a lot of Marxists who had argued that the, the capitalism had essentially found its way out of the declining rate of profit by discovering endless, seemingly endless cheap labor from abroad. And if you have this, then you don't need to invest in machinery. You can keep people in toil. There's no incentive to replace people with machines. But I remember reading that in 2007. And someone said, there's no more falling rate of profit. We might not even see any crises anymore. Capitalism, the capitalists have figured it out. And then you saw a resurgence of like the TSSI school and the, you know, after that crisis of the, you know, the falling rate of profit and that whole debate of it being the underlying tendency. And I don't know, that won me over, I have well, to say. But what, what, what happens there is that the people around 2000 were reflecting on the demographic realities of, you know, 1.2 billion Chinese entering the capitalist labor market. Okay? Uh, they didn't all enter it all at once because a lot of them were still in the countryside. But they were moving into the, the labor market very quickly. And it was also happening in India somewhat later. So long as that was the case, yes, the falling rate of profit wasn't operating. But... China is Japan delayed by 35 years. The same demographic processes which occurred in Japan are occurring in China. 
And the rate of profit in China is also declining in the way it declined in Japan. And it isn't yet happening in India. It isn't yet happening in Africa or the Middle East. But the nature of dynamics is their systems governed by differential equations. When they, you have to look at how different rates of change operate. Now, it is relatively easy to have an accumulation rate that will force down the rate of profit if the level of luxury consumption by the upper class is low. And that was the case in the percentage of luxury consumption was low in China, Japan, South Korea. These countries rapidly build up their capital stock, rapidly accumulate. Now, I don't think the same thing is operating in Egypt. To a much lesser extent, is it operating in India? On the other hand, in Ethiopia, perhaps it is operating. But you can't make an assessment of these things without a detailed breakdown of the distribution of national income between different, you know, how, it, how is it being allocated? How much of it goes to accumulation? How much goes to luxury consumption? How much goes to unproductive uses? Um, when you know that, you can say whether the rate of profit will rise or fall. So to what extent do you think that it's um, something central to an understanding of, our, of how we make sense of capitalist sort of dynamic? Certainly, you can't understand what happened to the capitalist world from 1945 to now without doing that, without looking at that. Uh, uh, sorry, you, look, Europe, to, Europe and America and Japan without uh, thinking in terms of the falling rate of profit because it starts to be a constraint by the late 60s uh, at a point when most of the European countries and Japan were beginning to run out of their latent reserve army of labor. The movement from of farmers to the countryside was exhausted. Now, the, you can't understand how U.S. capitalism keeps going without taking into account that it's drawing on large reserves of labor from South America. That sustains the rate of profit in, in, in the U.S.A. Now, that was much less evident in Europe in the 1970s was the last time they ran into a real crisis due to the rate of profit falling. What happens then is they reduce the rate of accumulation. Now, if you reduce the rate of accumulation, you can stabilize the rate of profit. In fact, many of the European or leading capitalist countries and this is something David Zachariah has shown, that from the 90s to the early 2000s, many of the leading capitalist countries had no net capital accumulation. They were, they were just ticking over. They invested enough to replace depreciation. Now, and no more. Now, if that's what you do, then the rate of profit <coughs> will fluctuate around the same level. If you try carrying out large-scale investment, as you're going to have to do to meet the climate change crisis, then it will tend to force it down, unless well, unless you remove large unproductive sectors. Well, you have to remove the large unproductive sectors to do the accumulation in the first place. One of the main sort of... Um, things that I find so exciting about your work is the role that you see for computation. And I wondered if you could kind of expound on that, because I know that you were going in that direction and I kind of left you, led you off into some different avenues. But what, what role do you see uh, for computation in our future? Well, essentially, to, to provide the feedback mechanism much faster that the market provides now. 
by doing direct computation of what would be required to meet final demand without it having to cascade through chains of through supply chains and through uh, speculative investment cycles the point is that if you know what is being sold now and you have a set of political objectives for the structure of consumption in 10 years time or let's say eight years time or something you you can say what you've got to be doing now in order to meet that and start allocating resources to achieve it rather than having uh, it being achieved approximately through fluctuations of prices and um, you know purchases managers indexes of uh, how, how much are we selling at the moment if you know what the structure of uh, feedback relations in objective feedback relations in the economy are you can pre-compute all that you can compute it in in minutes right or with the kind of computing resources that Alibaba or um, Google have, you can compute it very quickly, which is why Jack Ma said that, that, that he reckoned that China could do away with money with the computing resources that Alibaba has. Economica, страны Советов, по нашему анализу находилась в кризисном состоянии, которые позволили бы народному хозяйству, его отдельным отраслям повысить экономическую эффективность и на этой почве повысить производительность общественного труда, а на этой почве повысить благосостояние людей. Мы пытались И все от нас зависящее делали, чтобы для решения этих проблем вести большую экономическую науку. Большую, не подделками заниматься, а большую экономическую науку. Into this computer, the planners fed all the information they could find about Soviet society. For a brief moment in the mid-60s, it revitalized the hope that science could control society in a rational way. И некоторые из этих людей действительно питали иллюзии, не зная хозяйства, иллюзии, что можно с помощью электронных машин все планировать, все предсказывать э, и так далее. Но это была утопия. Пока это еще сказать, что полностью получилось, я не скажу. Начинает получаться, начинается набирать темпы. Но пока месяц еще не все реализовано то, что предложено наукой. Почему? Потому что надо, чтобы те, которые реализуют это, надо, чтобы понимали в науке и овладели ее основами. If you liked this episode, consider supporting on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley, where you can access bonus lectures, my ongoing published work, and more.